Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. From the book of the prophet Habakkuk, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. I want to talk this morning about prayer. As we approach the season of Lent in just two and a half weeks, I repeat, two and a half weeks, Lent is coming, and enter into the season of repentance and discipline and contemplation, I want to reflect this morning on this central practice of the Christian life. Prayer is the substance of the life of discipleship. It is the means by which we journey on pilgrimage to God, whose eternal communion we pursue as the supreme end of life. The end of that journey, what Christians have traditionally called beatitude or blessedness, is, put simply, the consummation of prayer. Beatitude is eternal, ecstatic, perfect communion with God, with God's people. It's prayer. Heaven, in other words, is an eternal prayer of being with God. Prayer is our destiny. We were made to pray. Even so, the way of salvation, the journey of discipleship, the path to this everlasting communion with God is not different than its end. It is a participation in that communion with God. The end of the journey is prayer. But so is the way. So is the journey itself. Prayer is a taste of eternal communion with God in the meantime, along the way. We were made to pray. So, why is it so hard? Why is it so disappointing so often? Why is prayer a struggle? If prayer is the thing that we were made to do, then why does it often feel so unnatural? The last thing we want to do when faced with difficulty or stress or suffering, why is prayer so filled often with frustration and discontent, both with ourselves and with God? Why do we find ourselves resenting having to address God in prayer? especially when we feel so acutely God's silence or the seeming futility of prayer. Why is it so hard to pray? I want to let those questions linger a little bit. I don't want to answer them too quickly. Because something about this feeling of struggle in prayer, I hope you know that feeling, of frustration and disappointment, anger, even pain. Something about that gets at the heart of what it means to pray in anticipation of beatitude, what it means to pray on the road, so to speak, to eternal communion with God, to pray in eternity, to enjoy God's blessedness and communion is bliss. But to pray on the way, that's struggle. So enter here, Habakkuk. Our reading from the book of the prophet Habakkuk this morning is the end of a prayer. The short book of Habakkuk, which consists of only three chapters, records a spirited back and forth between the prophet 
and God. The prophet offers a cycle of prayers, each in response to God's word and action in the world. Habakkuk, the book, is an extended prayer. But it's probably not the kind of prayer you would expect from a man of God like Habakkuk. To be honest, it's probably not the kind of prayer you would think should belong in the Bible at all. It's not a clean prayer. It's not a simple prayer. It's not the kind of prayer you would probably teach your children before bed. It is a messy prayer. It's an angry prayer. It's an accusatory prayer. And certainly, it is a desperate prayer. Habakkuk's is the kind of prayer that looks more like the prayers of frustration and anguish and struggle that many of us know so well, even if we are sometimes ashamed to have prayed those prayers. And it's exactly because Habakkuk's prayer is that kind of struggle that I want to walk through it this morning. We heard how it ends with a stunning resolution of faith, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. But this morning, I want to show you the hard road that Habakkuk took to get to that place. I want to tell the story of Habakkuk's prayer in the hope that it might give shape to yours. So the book of Habakkuk begins by giving us a name. It's Habakkuk's name. And the meaning of his name is a mystery. It could mean embrace, a name which is fitting given the book's ending, which we heard from a minute ago. But the name also closely resembles a Hebrew word for struggle. And any reader of the prophet's book knows that struggle is the best way to characterize what unfolds over the book's three chapters. It is profoundly fitting, I think, that Habakkuk's name possesses this ambiguity. His life and his prayer embody the continual dialectic of the life of prayer. Struggle, embrace, struggle, embrace. It's a posture and orientation to God that we find from the beginning of sacred scripture. Abraham's life with God is a fierce struggle of doubt and faith. Jacob wrestles with God and receives a blessing, as well as a new name, Israel, because he is the one, we are told, who struggles with God. The name Israel, which becomes the name of God's chosen people, literally means the God who struggles. And now Habakkuk, a prophet, during the time of Babylon's invasion and exile of God's people, takes up this mantle of struggle. In the midst of crisis, he will struggle with God. Things are not well in Judah. Violence and oppression and sin rule the streets of Jerusalem and are destroying God's people. And what's worse, at least in Habakkuk's mind, is that God does not even seem to care about this. Habakkuk's prayer begins in chapter 1, like many prayers of people in desperate situations, with a complaint, an accusation against God. How long, O Lord, shall I cry for help and you will not listen? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Habakkuk doesn't begin his message with an accusation against the people for their corruption and wrongdoing. Many of the prophets do. But 
He's, it seems, already given up on the people, resolved that they're lost to the powers of sin and violence. But God? Where is God in all of this? At least defend the defenseless, Habakkuk begs. At least save the innocent among these people from your people's ravaging injustice. The people's sin, it's somewhat predictable. But God's silence and inaction to the prophet, that is an outrage. So he goes on. Why do you make me see wrongdoing and look at trouble? Destruction and violence are always before me. Strife and contention arise, so the law becomes slack, and justice never prevails. The wicked surround the righteous, and judgment comes forth perverted. Can you not see what's going on right before your eyes, Habakkuk says? You make me sit here and look at this mess, and yet where are you? Are you not disturbed by this? Are you not mocked? The law which you gave your people as a gift to live in righteousness has gone slack. Justice never prevails. This is a mockery of God. Habakkuk's prayer begins in that struggle of lament and anger. Can you hear it? He's mad. Why won't you listen, God? Why won't you save? Why don't you care? I wonder if you've ever prayed words like those before. This past week, I was listening to Tom Waits' 1999 song, Georgia Lee. Maybe some of you know it. And I can't help but hear Habakkuk's lament in the rough and gritty voice of Waits' ballad. The song is a tragic and heartbreaking song. It was his response, Waits' response, to a horrific kidnapping and murder of a young, poor girl near his home. And in it, Waits describes the terror, his terror, at the sheer godlessness of the event. How either God must be cruel to allow something like this, or simply not paying attention. And then he sings over and over in the chorus this haunting refrain. Why wasn't God watching? Why wasn't God listening? Why wasn't God there for Georgia Lee? And I take Waits' questions here, and the haunting sincerity with which he asked them, to be one of the most challenging sets of questions to Christian faith. They are questions a lot of people are asking. Maybe you're asking them this morning. But they're not new questions. They're the same questions that Habakkuk was asking in the 6th century BC. Why isn't God watching? Why isn't God listening? Why isn't God there for Israel? But it's important to note something here. These questions, for Habakkuk and for Waits, are not ironic declarations of unbelief. They are questions of anger, no doubt, but not nihilism. They are directed to God, at God. They are provocations. In fact, they are prayers. I want to tell you this morning 
that it's okay to begin a prayer like that. Sometimes the only prayer you can utter when your teeth are clenched or your eyes are full of tears or your breath is short is, why don't you care? That's how Habakkuk begins his prayer. And it's a fine beginning. But if you pray a provocation like that, you also better be ready for a response. Because what follows Habakkuk's lament is a divine response. Indeed, God answers his prayer. He promises to end Israel's persistent and systemic unrighteousness by the power of an even more violent force than Israel, Babylon. Not the answer the prophet was expecting or hoping for. This is bad news. Babylon's worse than Israel, even at their worst. And so God's response provokes only more frustration from the prophet. If injustice is punished by violence, that's only going to lead to more injustice, a vicious cycle of retribution. Where is it going to end, God? So the struggle continues. Another lament, another response, another lament, another response. And the book of Habakkuk goes on. It's shaped by this struggle. It resists any idea that a lament to God is answered with a simple resolution, with closure. Instead, Habakkuk's struggle is an extended, impassioned argument with God. Sometimes the struggle lasts only a night, like Jacob, but sometimes it's weeks. Sometimes it's longer. It's that kind of struggle that the priest and poet Gerard Manley Hopkins wrote of in his great lament, I wake and feel the fell of dark, not day. Hear what Hopkins says. What hours, oh, what black hours we have spent. This night, what sights you heart saw, ways you went, and more must, and yet longer lights delay. With witness, I speak this, but where I say hours, I mean years, mean life. And my lament is cries countless, cries like dead letters sent to dearest him who lives, alas, away. For Habakkuk, for Hopkins, the cries of lament are hardly ever met with easy answers. Hopkins went most of his life praying that lament. And yet, there is something about the struggle of prayer, something about continually directing these laments and sorrows and frustrations and anger to God, that is, not just muttering them under our breath, but in courage and faith, speaking them directly to God. There's something about that struggle that gives way to embrace. What I mean is this. When we turn and face God, when we direct our laments to God in prayer, like Habakkuk, we just may collapse under the weight of pain and frustration and exhaustion 
But when we do, and we're turned facing God, we fall into the arms of God. And God may be silent. There may be no answer. But God is near, and God's arms are open. And that's the embrace. It's where Habakkuk's long struggle concludes. Not with an answer, but with an embrace. That's why after tears and shouting matches and sleepless nights, the prophet can conclude the book in hope. Though the fig tree does not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. There is great power in that word, yet. Yet I will rejoice. It's where the struggle and embrace of prayer converge. And it's important that Habakkuk says yet and not but. The latter but says the suffering, it isn't really that important. I can look past it in optimism or ignore it in naive wishfulness and rejoice in God. But says that hope and joy in God come by turning away from struggle, as if God is somehow far removed from it. But yet is different. Yet says the world may be going to hell, and my life may be marked and filled with pain and darkness, and I don't see God anywhere, and I don't even know what it would look like for healing to come to this place. And yet, and yet, in the face of all this, looking at it straight on, I hope in God. Yet, says, this pain, this suffering, this struggle is real, and it can't be wished away, but it's not all there is. It's not the end of the story. Yet, says, it hurts, but God is here. The paradox of Habakkuk's declaration of yet is where struggle and embrace meet. And Habakkuk lives in that tension. He is marked by it. He wears it as his name. And so do we. To pray is to lament and give thanks. It is to cry and bless. To protest and praise to struggle and embrace. We can't arrive at the embrace without struggle. But God does not let us struggle without the promise of his warm embrace. Indeed, his arms are outstretched for us, even now. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.